from home podcast i'm your host david miles oh my goodness it feels good to be back sorry for the long break folks i ran into some technical difficulties but and it almost ended in 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 more serious difficulties i was really thinking about throwing in the towel there for a second i was discouraged oh the internet is a very very strange thing and i rely on it heavily to pull this off from fredericton new brunswick because i talked to guests from all over the place and it was cosmic grief but i got it sorted out and we are back in business and we are back in business with a great great episode my friends i'm excited to share this conversation with you with Lori brown one of my favorite broadcasters. Lori brown also has one of the most interesting wikipedia pages i've ever read She was in the Sunglasses at Night video. Corey Hart, Sunglasses at Night. Can you believe it? She's interviewed David Bowie, Miles Davis. She was a VJ on Much Music. I've been familiar with Lori Brown pretty much my whole life. She was a host of The Signal on CBC Radio 2 for many years. It was a great program. And then she started her own podcast with Joshua Van Tassel called The Pondercast. If you've ever listened to Pondercast, it is such a cool and unique podcast. So I was really excited Because we have a lot of common friends, I was excited to chat with Lori Brown and get to know her because we've never actually met. Sometimes these are my favorite ones. In this conversation, it really came through. I loved spending this time with Lori. I knew it was going to be interesting, but it truly was filled with insight. So I'm glad to be back, and I really appreciate having you here with me every time. I hope you've enjoyed all the past episodes. We're going to keep them rolling now. We got it sorted. We are rolling here on the Miles from Home podcast. So tell your friends, share the episodes. It all makes a big difference. I appreciate you being here with me. Let's sit back and relax and enjoy this conversation with Lori Brown on the Miles from Home podcast. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much for doing this. Hi, David. It's a pleasure to meet you here and actually get to know you. And uh, I have a new friend on the East Coast now. Well, you know, it's interesting because I didn't even think about taking notes. I was like, you know what? I'm not even going to... I get so much I want to talk about. I've been a fan of yours for so long. And I thought, you know, I'm, I'm actually... We're talking to a professional broadcaster here, Lori Brown, and I don't even take any notes, but I was like, you know what? I'm confident we've got enough going on. We've got enough in common that we're going to have a lot to chat about. I think so. And working without a net is really the best way to work, I find. <laughs> I think it is. I'm less interested in working with a net in this format, especially mm-hmm. because... I never know where the conversations are going. I'm less interested in if, the, if I kind of know where they're going to go or if I choose where they're going to go. It's much more interesting if I don't know. That's, that's what I learned. You know, I would go to an interview with all these questions prepared, and then the sign of success was when the notes just got completely forgotten, and then the conversation just started happening, and it was, it was completely natural. And and spontaneous and that is 
a great interview. So the notes helped me feel more secure going in, but then hopefully I was just going to get rid of them once I was in an interview. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. Like, so you did, you would do prep, but then you, because you've done some huge interviews. You've done some massive interviews in your time. I mean, I saw you, you interviewed Miles Davis and like David Bowie and all these crazy legends. How was it going into those interviews? It was terrifying um, because they had obviously done way more interviews than I had ever given. Uh, They had an interview style. They knew exactly what they wanted to reveal and what they would keep private. I felt like I wanted to talk about things that other people hadn't talked about. So in doing my research, particularly with really famous people, you'd see they'd say the same line over and yeah. over and over again. And I go, okay, that's, that's their fallback. That's their secure fallback. And so I would make a point of trying to avoid those things. Yeah. Um, even though sometimes they were great lines, I would say I don't want them because people can find them somewhere else. Yeah, right. You're trying to provide something new. Yeah. And so the research would be mostly based on trying to find what that new thing is. What what angle has yeah. not been taken? Yeah. What makes what makes them tick? What makes them want to talk about their work in a way that they haven't talked about before? Mm. What and sometimes what makes them really passionate and want to talk has nothing to do with them or their work. You know, it's yeah. it's another artist that they're in love with or or a visual artist or something that's going on in the world. And I think that was when I always felt I hit pay dirt is when I'd see their eyes light up when I would mention right. a topic they weren't expecting. Yeah, and yeah. then they would just go. And, and artists can be uh, much more forthcoming, a lot of artists, when they're not talking about themselves because... Yeah. I think the the more popular an artist gets, the more they have to talk about themselves and the more they get sick of themselves. So the opportunity to talk about another artist or um, or art that they love really makes them open up. Yeah. And so giving them that opportunity, that mm-hmm. became your job. That's it. I think about that, uh, David, like there's a, this clip that's going around all the time from David Bowie, speaking of David Bowie, about the internet. And you've probably yeah. seen it where he's like, you know, the Internet's this is we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg. It's going to change everything. And and, you know, that at the time, that was probably what you're talking about. He was probably mm-hmm. on a press tour, you know, talking about an album and someone happened to ask him about technology in a certain way. And all of a sudden mm-hmm. he lights up with this brilliant answer that is kind of a timeless. Now we look at it and go, wow, what a what a prescient moment. You know, he really saw what was going to happen. And that was because. He was, you know, he got lit up by a good question. Totally. You know, that's, 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 and so how, you know, when, how old were you when you started doing these interviews? Were you right out of broadcasting school? Did you go to broadcasting school? Did you get right into it? No, I did not. Okay. I started out uh, as a singer and an actor and I was doing musical theater and I was doing television and I was singing in a band with a bunch of people from City TV, where I worked as a film editor. And so I think it was the, the acting part on, in front of the camera that mm, let the people at New Music say, hey, we should, we should interview Laurie for this job. She might be good because she's, you know, musical and she, she knows a little bit about acting for a camera, being in front of a camera. So 
that's how that all started. Like, I am a happy accident in the broadcast world because I never went to school. And trust me, I, I feel the shame of that constantly Come through on. my career. Come oh, on. yeah. Really? Oh, oh, David, it's, yeah, that I never went to university. Do you think there would have been benefit? Uh, there would have been personal benefit and experiential benefit, like to be able to to go to university would have been, an, I think, an amazing experience. And I think about going back now. I think about what would I want to do if I went back for some kind of, you know, special, I imagine I could get some kind of, you know, graduate, you know, student, you know, pass to get in and do a master's in something or whatever. But um, so far, life has not taken me that that route. But I think about it. Do you? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's I, I do, too. I think about it all the time. Really? You oh, didn't yeah. go to university? You went to I university. Did. You went. I did. And I actually really did love it. That's kind of why I ask, you know, because I didn't study music, though. So when I think about it from like a professional uh -huh. perspective, often people ask me like, oh, how was your university? You know, how did it affect your profession? And I, I'm kind of like, well, I don't know if it, I'm not sure I get much, you know, there's no direct relationship at this, you know, between I study political science and, and now I write songs. But at the same time, do I value my education? Yeah, it was awesome. I went to Mount A. I really loved it. I loved it. I, we, I studied political philosophy. It's kind of like it became my hobby. Aren't you supposed to be a kind of Phil Oaks character then? Shouldn't you be writing protests? Yeah, yeah, songs? yeah, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah. Like Tim Robbins, that movie. Yeah, what's the, you yeah. know, the, Bob Roberts or whatever. Yeah. yeah. The, yes. The, <laughs> yeah, I don't think so. In fact, I think actually it was probably what got me into music was the interest of that, the fact it was so entirely different than politics mm, to me. Well, it had, it had this like opportunity. It was open. It had this way of connecting with people in a way that I felt like was deeper and more fundamental and could bring people together in a more fundamental way. When after spending time studying politics, but then working in politics and just seeing it was just like the partisanship and that whole element of, of winning and it became less interesting. I didn't, you know, I was like, oh, yeah, music feels friendly. Well, you know, music is a way to get your music, to get your message through. Like it goes in like a hypodermic needle into a main vein compared to the political process. That's right. right? It's just so, sur that can end up being so surface. Whereas if you succeed at, 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 at a piece of art, I think, as you said, you know, it goes right in. Right, it goes into the deepest parts of us. And that's mm -hmm. obviously what, what makes people who are interested in art, interested in art, is that whole, and that it can happen in so many different ways, in so many different forms. It can be a funny song. It can be a, you know, it can be a deep song. It can be a slow song. It, that, that part's not the, there's no, there's no direct line to the heart, you know, to the soul. Mm. It's just, it's the most incredible thing to me. But I don't, I didn't really get that in, it wasn't satisfying that part for me, the, the political yeah. part. I found it fascinating. I, I think how we organize ourselves and the values of our society is super important. But in terms of pursuing it as my main thing, I just got less and less. But wow. loved my education. Loved my, I, I mean, I did. I did enjoy it for sure. Well, see there, I'm jealous. Never too late. Come on. Never, there's got, you know, you could, uh, you're where, you're near Yarmouth? Yes. You could uh, go to... I could uh, go, I could get Santa. in the car and drive. <laughs> you could get in the car and drive. You could do uh, some My online French isn't learning. so good. Yeah, <laughs> I okay. Couldn't do so. it. I couldn't do it in French. Right. I'd yeah. have to go to Wolfville. That's all there would be to it. That's I'd go right. to Acadia or King's College in, in Halifax. Yeah. yeah. 
Well, there's some nice stuff out there. It's interesting. I mean, but of course, uh, there's, you've spent your whole life educating yourself. You've spent yes. your whole life engaging in ideas and engaging with people and engaging in interesting conversations. So, I mean, it takes a lot of different forms. You're probably, in many ways, getting a lot more out of what you've pursued in terms of intellectual stimulation than you might in many classrooms. I agree with you about that. I mean, life is such an uh, it's such an education, and and if you don't get the lesson the first time around, uh, it comes back to make you get the lesson again and again and again. And when you get to be my age, which I just turned sixty-five, um, you see these lessons coming over the horizon, galloping towards you as saying, oh yeah, I haven't got that right yet, have I? I'm just about to get walloped by that again. And uh, it's fascinating. So basically at this point in my life, when things come to me as, and I can see that there's an, an educational uh, benefit to them, I say to myself, don't do what you've done before. Let's try something new here. So uh, it's true what they say that you know less as you get older, and uh, I think eventually I'm I'm going to be some kind of clean slate. I hope, where I'm just looking at the world with um, they call a beginner's mind. Um, uh, but I really I'm really intrigued by that idea of looking at everything as if I don't know what the fuck is going mm -hmm. on here. Let's mm -hmm. let's just play it as it lays. I, I, I mean, absolutely. I love it. I, I'm fascinated by the same concept. I started, you know, with that, for me, the, my first introduction to the, the beginner's mind was actually through the, through the Tao Te Ching with the kind of mm -hmm. uncarved block, the infinite potential of the uncarved block. And as soon as you start carving it and it takes shape, then it actually can't do as much. Mm -hmm. And kind of like the, the, you know, the, the beginner's mind, the empty vessel, it's, it's such a powerful idea. And, and that experience, as you said, that life is actually, whether we get it at first, life will actually force us to embrace that over time if we're listening, if we're trying to learn yeah. from our lives. Yeah. And each time you don't do it right, the suffering increases. <laughs> right. And you realize, I'm causing this myself. I really know I'm causing this myself. Uh-huh. That's Let's interesting. Let's take another run at it. Well, you know, so, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, maybe part of it is that we have an expectation. We like to have an expectation as to how things are going to play out. Mm -hmm. And if we kind of stay open to what the possibilities are, rather than having the kind of end in mind, it becomes a little bit more tolerable, if that makes any sense. You seem to me to be an artist that holds a lot of open possibilities in your head at the, at all times because when I look at the different kinds of music that you've done and the kind of breadth of the breadth of of feel and tone and sound that you've you've got in your career it seems to me that you're that kind of an artist that that holds your mind open for any possibility I think that it's I appreciate that I definitely certainly it's funny I was just in at University of Toronto I did a, I did a talk at the monk school 
on creativity and imagination. Like someone with a degree would be able to do. Yeah, wasn't yeah, that a great, great. great opportunity? <laughs> totally. I know. Yeah, that, that was a lucky. Thanks was, for slipping that in there. <laughs> no, but it was cool. It was cool. It was cool to get the opportunity to be able to step back and actually think about these things. And maybe it was, I mean, it was, it was directly related to the fact that I did go to school because the Peter Lowen, who runs, who is the head of the monk school, and I, we went to school together. And we've known, there we went go. to Nanny together. And he said, you know what? I bet you could talk about this. The point being that when I was forced to think about creativity and imagination, I came back to that being kind of like, that's the fundamental rule for me, mm. for, for imagination, for creativity. If we're, if we're going to be engaged in creative pursuits, the importance is that we can return to a wide open space when we start. Mm. You know, that, that you need to start at infinite possibilities and then you whittle it down. But if you're starting up here, you know, further along the line mm -hmm. and say, well, I can't do that because I've, I've, I'm this type of person or I can't do this because I because of this, you're all you're like automatically limiting your 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 output, your potential output. Our job as creative people fundamentally is probably to return to the open space, mm -hmm. the most open space let things fly and then kind of grasp what seems interesting and then follow it. That's it. Mm -hmm. And then as you follow it, you'll kind of, kind of slowly sort out whether it's worth pursuing or not. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm sure you've done this as, as your career has evolved too. You've, you've looked at things and gone, well, maybe I could do this or maybe I should do this. And it's, you know, but it's until you return to that place of kind of infinite potential or possibility, you're, Otherwise, you'd really limit the, you'd be like, oh, well, I can't do that. I can't do a podcast after I did uh, CBC because mm -hmm. that's a different thing. And then I have to, you know, but no, you don't, you know, you've moved forward by actually returning to that open, open place. I just, it was interesting because I never had the chance to actually step back and think about, okay, well, what's, what's a creative pursuit? What is creativity? Well, to, so yeah, I think it is, a, I think it's a huge part of of what the job is, what you're kind of trying to engage in as an artist, sometimes successfully and sometimes unsuccessfully. But those are the parts that you almost don't control. The parts that you can control are the parts that like, how well can you step back? Yeah. And that's, that's exactly what I hear in your career is that you can step back. You step back far enough to see the stuff on the periphery that is a possibility. And I could do this, I could do this, I could do this. And a lot of people wouldn't, wouldn't see that. And that, that feeling of, um, stepping back and looking at things creatively is something I've realized that is not just to do, uh, that I don't employ just for my career. I employ it for everything in my life. If I'm, I'm struggling with someone in my family or a friend, if I'm uh, having a re real trouble with somebody, I, I realize I can look at this as a creative problem. I can look at all my problems through a creative lens. And as soon as I do that, things become easier because I let go of stuff. I step back. I kind of detach myself from the feelings around it. And I'm able to look at it creatively. And as soon as I can do that, I am presented with so many clearer options that a creativity is something that not doesn't just help you in in the art that you make, but it ha it helps you in the art of your life too. If you can you can look at your whole life as a creative uh, gesture, mm -hmm. it will help. I love that. 
I think you're totally right. I mean, it's in fact, I, I in fact, I kind of wish that I had have said that too, <laughs> because that's actually a really important part. Because I think it's sometimes we actually do the same things with our lives. We limit what mm-hmm. the possibilities are. I mean, you've moved mm-hmm. to you've moved to this to Yarmouth or outside mm-hmm. of wherever you are in, in southern Nova Scotia. Yeah, Port I mean, Maitland. that's a big move. To leave the city after all of those years and go, that requires imagination because then you, you actually need to kind of go, hmm, okay, think through, is this, you, there's a faith element, there's like a leap of faith element, but there's also this kind of creative possibilities because there's lots of reasons why you could say, no, I'm not going to leave the city. I got this, I got this, I got this, I can't do oh, that. Oh, well, there was, there, were, there were lots of things, but I think in the back of my mind, I always wanted to be someone who had a period of their life where they lived in a very small place. Hmm. And I, I wanted to get that in. And I've actually had this house here for 15 years because this is the village where my dad was born and my grandfather and my great-grandfather and blah, 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 blah. So I've been coming here for 15 years in the summer, actually all through the year, uh, uh, for about the last five years of the signal, I was recording from down okay. here. And uh, as long as I didn't tell anybody I was doing it, the the management let me do it at CBC. <laughs> and Andy Shepard and I figured out a way to do it. So there was a there was a real pull to be here because it's a landscape that I've known since my childhood. So it was a uh, it was an obvious thing, and my father was getting really old, and my sister is here. So it was a it was a pull of family. But you're right that that feeling of leaving Toronto was immense because actually I grew up in Toronto and everything was there. So it was a big deal, and I'm really glad I did it. Are you? Because yeah, it's been a huge learning curve, and. I've settled into a kind of a very different kind of life, which I like a lot. You know, solitude is something that you you is a skill that is acquired, and some people uh, I think of it as a as a gift to be able to really get to experience solitude and move past the point of loneliness and get into solitude. Um, so I spend a lot of time by myself when I'm here. But then I also have another life, really, because I have a boyfriend who lives in England, and I go back and forth. So I'll spend, you know, three or four months here by myself, and then I'll go over for a couple months, and then I'll come back. So basically, I've got it made in the shade, yeah, David. Well. It's like a great situation. You know, I, I, I want to dig into the solitude thing a little bit, because one thing that's always struck me about when I listen to you and why I, I really love listening to you is because there's this, there's this comfort with space and pace, if you will. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's really refreshing and it's really unique. And it, it, to me, I find it just fascinating to listen to, but also because I, I, I think it's unique because, as you said, moving past solitude is kind of similar to moving past being okay with space. You know, Sarah Harmer and I actually mm-hmm. talked about this a little bit with this idea that, like, are you okay with with emptiness, with with nothingness, you know, in a conversation? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in the way I think as a young performer, as a young broadcaster, I 
you know, I'm a hyper guy and I was really nervous about space. I didn't, even in my life, I'd fill up everything. Mm-hmm. Every minute was full. Every minute on stage was, was full. I wouldn't take a drink of water. Mm. Wow. It, you know, two hours was song, break, boom, let's go, 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 go. which I, I like. But at a certain point, there's something that becomes, and then I saw, actually, and then I, had to, I saw Merle Haggard. And it was like a completely different energy on stage. He was late mm-hmm. in his career. He was comfortable. And because he was so comfortable, the audience was so comfortable. Because yeah. he was comfortable with space, the audience was comfortable with space. He was at ease. They were at ease. And I was like, there's a different thing at play here. Mm-hmm. There's a different mm-hmm. thing at play. It's a different approach to pace, to space, to speed. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know, I mean, it, to energy, all of these things. And I feel like your approach it makes me think of that. It makes me excited. I listen to it and I go, okay, this is interesting. Now, is this something that you've always worked on? Is this something that you deliberately do? And how does it, you know, how, how did it come about and how do you, th- or, or is it just, do you not even think about it? I uh, no, it was a big discovery for me and it was starting radio, moving from television to radio and feeling the, the, incredible differences between the two mediums and how actually radio is a visual medium because anything that you say, uh, people use their own brains to supply the pictures, you know. Um, I could say anything, like, you should see this bouquet of tulips. It's on my dining room table. It's got red tulips and it's got this beautiful yellowy, orangey tulip in it and you just do it it's in a blue vase and there you go you've done it and and that was my first realization and the second realization I had was that silence on the radio makes people lean in because as soon as there's a pause no one knows what's going to happen next is it is it a technical difficulty uh has she lost her train of thought Um, what's going on and people lean in and as soon as they lean in they're listening and I think through my my own practice my own meditation practice there was this magic moment when I went from realizing that silence was not nothing silence was everything and the moment I realized that silence holds the universe in place then you understand the power of silence and then you can give it the space that it i don't want to say needs or wants because it doesn't have needs or wants um, but you can access it and so silence probably became one of my biggest uh, toys in the sandbox when I was on radio was to be able to use that silence and, and it's a universal thing we all we all have the same access to, to silence and we all it all hits us in this in the same kind of place it can you it can start out feeling like silence is terrifying 
But what you are is you are terrified of the everything that you don't know is there. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then eventually you, you get used to that idea that it's all right there. And it's a very, very powerful thing. And you know that in music, too. You know how even a moment of silence, a break before you hit the chorus or the bridge or, or just a pause in a line, you know what that does. It's, it's amazing. Well, I think I'm starting to become more familiar. I think it's, it's my learning. You know, these are, these are the things I'm really learning I, I, now. I don't think I always, re- I mean, I always knew that I knew the sayings, like don't fill all the space. And, mm-hmm. you know, I grew up listening, I was a trumpet player. And I, so I grew up listening to Miles Davis all the time. And I knew his kind of philosophy. And, and, you know, that really opened my mind very early on to the idea of like, you don't need to be able to fill all the, all the space. It's not like that, mm-hmm. you know. So I, I got it kind of from a technical perspective, but I was still scared of silence. Mm. And when I, you know, it just, it's very interesting to listen to someone because I think that the, as you said, people lean in partially because they're, they're terrified, but as long as the other person is not terrified, Mm -hmm. you know, again, part of this talk actually was about performance and was that, you know, most people just want to be put at ease when you're on stage and that can look like a lot of different things. It actually doesn't involve, if you're, if there's a moment of silence and you go into a panic state, yeah, sure. They're going to be uneasy. But if you're calm, I mean, I've watched people on stage chill for minutes, Mm -hmm. take a drink of tea, look around. Is the audience uneasy? Not at all. Because the person on stage is, it's the same thing with broadcasting. Am I uneasy when I'm listening to you? And there's a, when there's a pause No, because I'm going, no, Lori's got it. It's all good. I'm good. <laughs> She's not scared of the silence. I'm good. I'm chilling. We're chilling together. And I'm also just thinking most of the time, too, because I don't know what I'm going to say next. And that is also another, uh, I think, really important thing in, any, in anything, in a conversation. Um, you, you like to know that the person has not, is not just thinking, okay, I got a story to tell. Like as soon as that guy stops talking, I'm gonna tell it. You wanna know that they're that they're actually thinking about what they're going to say next. Mm-hmm. Like it's gonna be a surprise to me as yes. well as you. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it goes back to that kind of infinite potential thing, right? Yes. It actually does go back to that the fact that even in a in an interesting conversation, you need to go back to that place where you don't know what's gonna happen next. No. And, but it's hard to lean into that and become, I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned meditation because I think meditation has, it's been a huge part of my life over the last few years. And I think that mm-hmm. I was wondering how much of a part of it, uh, if you meditate, if this is where this, this kind of, where some of this has been born out of. Oh, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's been close to 20 years I've been meditating now and, uh, during the pandemic for pon- uh, PonderCast, um, we decided to start a new podcast called Ground Level, which is 20-minute meditations, which is all has, each one has original music by Joshua Van Tassel. And we put these out friggin' every week during the pandemic. Like it was an immense amount of work that we did. And why not? We had nothing else to do. Um and so uh, that was another level, is trying to do a guided meditation for people. 
and we now have over 100 episodes. But yeah, meditation has been a very, very, very big part, I think, of, um, of my life. And it's as important, I think it was Maya Angelou, was it? Or I think Maya Angelou said, it's important as changing your sheets on your bed every week. Mm is meditation and it's a kind of uh, mental hygiene that I think has become really important to me that if I don't I'm just clogging up everything so and you say you started a couple years ago was it the pandemic that made you start thankfully I started before oh (laughs) (laughs) honestly I'm very I am thankful that I had already kind of established I was always fascinated by it you know, I, I was I was kind of interested in the in the philosophical side of things, and you know, and I had, I had done you know Buddhist reading, and so I I was interested in it. But what I didn't realize is that well, the core practice is this thing, and that 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 is a is a practice, and and you and so I thought, okay, well, I'll try it. And again, I think the tendency for people is to say, well, I can't do it. I'm not good at it. Like, I, I, yeah. I'm too hyper for that. Well, the, the reality was for me, that is all true. I was too, like, but that's exactly why I get so much benefit from it. It's been mm-hmm. transformative because part of it is because it is difficult. Because I sit and at first find it kind of agonizing and then there's this wonderful grace that descends and actually makes me feel okay with being who I am, where I am in space, when I'm not producing things, when I'm not, you know, running around, being productive, being, you know, quote unquote productive. Mm-hmm. It really just changed my whole philosophy on the, on the day and, and my time and, and, and being kind to myself. That was a yeah. big, big bond. I mean, I think really what probably got me into meditation was just kind of being a little depressed. Yeah, you know, yeah. was just not really knowing where I, what I wanted, what, what I was getting, not feeling totally fulfilled. And, and I thought, well, maybe, you know, let's see if I can become comfortable with this as a practice. And, and when I started doing yoga, it was interesting because I found that the, the end part, you know, the chill part, I was like, oh, no, no, this is what I'm in. I want to just sit. This is actually really restorative shavasana man like i want 30 minutes of yeah i was comfortable (laughs) i was like okay i think this is this is giving me that thing that i needed i felt like so much of my energy was outward for so many Mm -hmm. years and again i'm like i'm a social i'll fill up all the time i was and so i didn't have this restorative element to my life and i i saw i i I looked for it i guess and i've been reading and then i just said you know let's just try it and but i think what's it been really interesting is just that you know, you go from the stage of being like, oh, I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. I'm terrible at this. To slowly being like, it's okay. I'm just sitting. And then you kind of, you learn how to be more just kind to yourself because there's just so much beating up of yourself for the first few minutes of your first few meditations, especially of just going, I can't do this. No, no, I'm terrible at this. I shouldn't be doing this. This is terrible. I, I can't do it. Slowly you go, actually I can and I will. Yeah, you don't have to listen to your mind. You know, I think that's what uh, right. meditation taught me. And that you all, it doesn't ask anything of you except stay on the cushion yeah, yeah. for, <laughs> uh, you know, for as many minutes as you want. It doesn't ask anything. 
it doesn't ask you to not have a thought. It doesn't ask you to forget things. It doesn't ask anything. It just is saying, learn to sit with your own mind. Mm-hmm. Learn to watch how it works and get yourself. And the more you do it, the more of a perspective where you can watch how your mind works and not get attached to all the thoughts going by. I think it was really good for me because I have always been a people pleaser and I will, you know, I want people to like me. I want to want to be admired. I want people to think I do good work. And I rarely, it takes me a long time to figure out how I feel about stuff because I'm so aware how other, what other people's expectations and, and desires are. So I found that meditation was really good for me just to figure out how do I feel about this? Like, how do I feel about doing this job or that job or, or the way that this family um, situation is playing out? How do I really feel about it? So it enabled me to actually get in touch with my, uh, my own feelings and my own intuition. And uh, so it's incredibly important. And I hear people who say, I can't meditate. I can't meditate. And we all feel that way at the beginning. Yeah, yeah, that's we right. all, everybody does. And that's why they call it a practice because no one gets it right. You just, you're practicing all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and particularly during uh, COVID, it was, it was very helpful. Yeah, yeah, no, it was a, it was a very... It was a very uncertain time, and so, mm. and I actually, and I feel like there's still so much uncertainty in the world and in the way people are feeling. Yes, there's a lot of uncertainty, and you know, some ways it's almost worse. Don't I, you find? I, I, I'm wondering that. I was just, I, yeah. my wife and I were just talking about that this morning, kind of going, you know, you know, where, where, where are we finding purpose and hope and those kind of things, and. How do we do that? And what are the things that we can, because the market won't give it to us. <laughs> it's, it's, we, I hate to sound like Please a flash, you know, but it, it, exactly. But it's not, it's social media is not going to give it to us. Yep. It's not going to come on our phone. It's not going to come from something we buy. It's just not, it's not going to come from putting more hours in on the job. No. And that's the trickiest part. And I think that we've kind of been maybe for, we're kind of groomed to think that that's how it's going to work. And then when it doesn't, it can be kind of devastating, especially when the everyday pleasures, the everyday joys of life get denied, as in mm-hmm. our relationships, our social mm-hmm. life. You know, mm-hmm. the the joy we get from being with each other and seeing each other all of a sudden, that, and then we're going to go, well, wow, I'm actually not getting that much joy from my phone. I'm not getting that much joy from, like, real joy, you know, sustainable mm-hmm sustaining meaningful joy meaningful joy and yeah. so i do I, I i actually wonder if we're not I, I i and i am a hopeful person but i wonder if we're in a state sometimes that we've come out you know we're coming through some form of this and and maybe because it actually isn't giving us the thing we expected it to that that's actually dev- uh, there's a devastation in that as well yeah that we can't go back <laughs> We can't go back mm-hmm. and we have to move forward and, uh, and find new ways. And I know that I've put out way more effort and taken on way more, I, you, I guess you could call it risk because of, you know, the possibilities of getting sick to get to my family members because uh, 
Um, my daughter lives in Europe and my boyfriend's in England and I've had to decide, okay, when do I go? How am I going to make this work? It's important to me. I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. I am, I've, I've been finding ways to not be stopped and to make sure that there's not kind of uh, a, the creep of fear. Um, I'm, I won't let it take over my life. And I have seen friends and family where this creep of, of fear of the world has, has really taken over and they are denying themselves so much. It feels to me unnecessarily. And I'm trying hard not to judge them but I, I, I see how small their worlds have become, mm-hmm. and it's, uh, it's painful. Mm. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right entirely. I mean, you, fear is kind of the other side of hope. You know, it's kind of the other. So fear, it does. You probably it, can't have one without the other, right? Yeah. I mean, that's it. They're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're unified in this strange way, but at the same time, I mean... As you said, we can't go back. So we're, our job is to be engaged in the world and to move forward. And I, I feel the same way. I, I, I kind of wonder, you know, it seems like if there's if there's a tendency now, it is of kind of paralysis of, of, of this kind mm-hmm. of like inability to move and to mm-hmm. engage out of fear for a number of reasons. Mm-hmm. A number of reasons. Just, just doing the wrong thing, making a mistake getting sick, whatever, you know, there's so mm-hmm. many different layers to this, but how do you overcome that, that fear of actually just being alive in the world, which as you said, and as you know, we know is that involves making mistakes. Yeah. But there, I think they're more meaningful mistakes. <laughs> yeah. I think that uh, there's a lot of things that are going on right now that are more meaningful. And I think about, well, people like you with children who have gotten gotten through this time and how that has changed the the way your life would have been without covid mm-hmm. do you find that there's a that there's there's a what would you say were there benefits were i mean it, all i can think of is it was incredibly hard for someone with small children but Boy, yeah, oh but I think there when was think... one thing about it that I think I, I could fall back on, which was purpose was clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was something about it that was actually strangely uh, clear. I think maybe I'm indecisive. And so when there's too many things on the table, I kind of can get that's actually where I'm at my most. Whereas when things were taken off. And I knew that in my household, my job was to be with the kids and to be, especially at the first of it, when they weren't in school, it was very clear. I didn't have, there was no, it wasn't, I wasn't waking up and making a decision. It was, this is what it's going to look like. And there was something strangely uh, invigorating Mm -hmm. about clear purpose. It was, it was, it was hard because you want to make sure that your kids are getting enough out of the world. And and we did move. I mean, we did make big changes. I moved, you know, I moved to my hometown in Fredericton and spent a ton of time in the woods and changed our whole kind of day to day, which I think were all really important changes and good changes. But yeah, I think about that. I certainly, you know, we could kind of hunker down as a unit, Mm. but we were a unit. Yeah. You know, we were a unit. It was very different from 
being alone fundamentally. I wasn't alone. I had, I had purpose and I had a unit. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I, in some ways it, it was hard, but in other ways I don't think it was the same as those who were truly isolated, truly isolated from one another. I had, you know, I had my, my, my family, my kids, and I had, there was, there was no lack of busyness. Yeah, yeah sure. it was busy. It was active. <laughs> I was the worst homeschooler ever. I thought I was going to be brilliant. So that was kind Don't of... Don't we all? That was, that was kind of humbling. Hey, you went to university. What's your problem? My parents were teachers. I was like, this is going to be a breeze. Come on. I always joked about it. Like, I came in so strong. And after six days, I, like, I just dropped the whole program. And I actually got really into the idea of just being like, you know what? We're going to try towards harmony. Harmony is going to be our fundamental goal in the family. Let's try to have a harmonious, maintain a harmonious relationship. And maybe it, and that was, that was it. I, I guess it, there was something about, it was kind of simplifying in a nice way. I wasn't going, you know, you need to do, I was like, no, no, no. we just need to get through this. We need to be, mm-hmm. be there for each other. We need to listen to each other and we need to be a harmonious unit that tries that we, as we move through the world. Because we don't know what's going to happen, and so at least that was my my philosophy. And it was we were in a, very, a different. My wife has a regular job, you know, so there was mm-hmm. a lot of advantages. You know, we I didn't have the same struggles that other people did, and so mm-hmm. it's hard for me to say it was absolutely brutal because it was tricky because I had the kids. But that's and and it was busy. But was it really really tough? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think sometimes coming out of these things and then reevaluating your new purpose uh, is, is, sometimes, is sometimes hard. Yeah, and I think that's right. That's where we are, right? Mm-hmm. Looking for a new purpose. Looking for a new purpose. So where do you find joy these days? I find joy in the woods, on the beach. Uh, I was out the first sunny day yesterday in weeks. <laughs> And, uh, and I realized, oh, damn, the ticks are out. Uh, then the ticks are alive and well here in Nova Scotia. And as someone who recovered from Lyme disease this summer, I am now petrified of these little fuckers. And uh, <laughs> I, uh, and so, they're, they're you know, already out. Oh, yeah, they're out. They don't die. They, they, these things do not die. Oh, they are out. Man. Like it was warm, right? It was like nine degrees or something yesterday. So there's that. And I'm thinking, well, it doesn't matter. I'm tucking my pants into my boots and away we go. And uh, that's where I find joy. I find joy on the beach. I find joy walking in the woods. Um, I find joy in making future plans which is something that uh is come back in a way that was a lot harder during you know so i enjoy thinking about uh going to england um uh trips to see my daughter in vienna where she lives and uh that's where i find joy mm-hmm. that's that's sounds pretty similar to me actually yeah <laughs> you know honestly and those are sustaining i mean for me those are the those are the things that sustain me really talking about space you know and being comfortable with space and uh being 
being out in the woods and and I kind of it's a it's I think it's a fallback in some ways nature is a fallback it, it should be that we look at the world from the woods outwards but um, most of us use nature as a as a fallback but uh, it's become increasingly important in my life because like silence um, the world out there holds that same kind of power um, and uh, I find that is my expansive spot. Mm-hmm. It's not just a, it's not just a, I feel better when I'm in the woods. I find that that's where uh, my world really expands. I think, yeah, I would, you know, I wonder if it's not because we're like, you know, our thoughts or us when we're in that kind of environment, we are less the center of that environment. It becomes quite clear, you know what I mean? We're more at the mercy of what's yeah. happening. And there's a different, it sounds, you know, I always find it, what I enjoy is that there's a different frequency. Mm-hmm. There's a different frequency in in the woods for me. It's where I, where I tap into a different, I'm looking at trees that have been growing over hundreds of years and are strong and filled with energy, but moving at a very different pace than a mm-hmm. airplane or a car. Or my thoughts. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and you're not the biggest thing in the world when you stand in the woods. And that is a very helpful thing to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we'll fill up the space. Yeah. Like, we will fill up the space. You know, that's really interesting. Really interesting. And what about music? Are you listening to music lots? Um, I do. I, I slip in and out. I am pathologically uh, attuned to looking for new music, which I now think is a, is a kind of a bit of a problem. And I think that is uh, is damage from my career as as always being you know a music journalist and always trying to look for the next thing and and be on top of it all. Because I really, I, I don't really have much of a nostalgic bone in my body for huh. music. Um, my n- nostalgia is more for the music of my parents that I, I will play occasionally. But my own music that I grew up listening to, I don't really listen to. And it's like I haven't been able to give myself permission to listen to the music that I love, which is very odd so i'm i'm trying to rectify that and and go through my library and and pick out old albums and i find that when i do because i don't know do it normally i get like overwhelmed by memory and feeling and uh uh love for the music that i hadn't and i'd forgotten about that is like a big part of me so I'm actually trying to listen to some more older music these days instead of um, instead of, you know, perusing every week what's new, what's, you know, the new albums that have come out and and sampling those. Um, And I am allowing myself also to be more uh, to be more selective. And instead of feeling like I have to know everything, I've let that go, which is a huge relief because there is a lot of music out there Mm -hmm. 
There is a lot. I remember Jane Sibbery saying at one point, she said, there's way too much music in the world. And I thought, that's a funny thing to say. But I, I completely understand that sensation um, and that feeling of just thinking, ah, oh, you know, from the first eight bars, I can usually, I usually get a sense of disappointment when I, when I play something new. is because it's filling a formula that is of the moment, um, and that's not where I reside. Um, I reside in the, you know, a discovery end of things. I want to hear something I haven't heard before. I want to be, I want to think that, you know, this is, this is something new. So, yeah, my listening is kind of, I'm, I'm trying to find a new way to listen to music, frankly, at this point. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's, it's funny to say there's too much, because there's too much music, because I do know what you're saying. I'm always amazed at just how much there is. And when you're mm -hmm. talking to new artists, to kind of still say, you know, go for it, go for it, go for it, despite mm -hmm. there being an infinite amount of music. Because at the same time, the infinite amount of music is kind of, as a music fan, is the most incredible thing about it. Like that, that the well never runs dry as a record fan, you know, like that yeah. just, I can't believe I'm still discovering records that were made 40 years ago that fit what I would love and I had never heard. You know what I mean? Like there's this, it's yeah. where you're like, how deep is this well? How much has been, and then you realize, of course, it is this endless well. It's what uh, I thought being an obsessive music fan at 13 by 21, I would have heard everything. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. 20 years later, I'm not even, you realize again, it's kind of like what you know. You realize you actually don't know. There's, there's an infinite, there's infinite records. There's infinite things that have been created and ways to engage with them. But, but at the same time, it actually is more up to your ears, your state of mind. It's interesting that you've always leaned forward like that. Like what were the records early on that, like what was your teenage record that you went, holy smokes like this is my parents music this is my music this is mm. exciting that, that put you in that place that made you look for that new sound what, what were those records well let's skip over the monkeys phase shall we and uh go directly to something um not that they weren't fabulous it was fabulous pop music but i think it was kate bush in wuthering heights uh, um, the very earliest David Bowie. It was that stuff. It was that art rock stuff that I I fell in love with, and I thought this is my music. Yeah. Here we go. But uh, all of us know what that feeling is. But the fact that you could have your own taste, and it just you didn't go looking for it. It kind of found you, you know, whether it was on a radio under your pillow or whether it was an album that your older brother gave you for Christmas, you know, your first album or whatever. It kind of found you. And it was, a, it was, it, it, it was just another huge peg in your self-identity, you know, when you found that piece of music that was really spoke, that really spoke to you. It was it it sort of solidified a big thing in your brain about who you thought you were, which is all bullshit, as I found out now. But anyways, <laughs> at that time, it was very important. And uh, it was a big, big deal. 
to separate you from your parents, right? What well, that's, was your first album? That's why I say, you know, that it's, it is, because for me, that, I think that's what it was. It was partially about saying, yeah, this is, this is mine. This hasn't been given to me by them, or I'm not just listening to this. This is, yeah. this is, um, you know, I think my first probably was just music that I heard at like, you know, camp, which was probably like CCR and like that kind of stuff. You know, there was that yeah. early, but I honestly think that the, my music early on from the very beginning, when I think about it, like some of the first stuff I loved and I would sit and wait for was like R&B was like Belle Biv DeVoe. Mm. I remember when, you know, when Poison came out, that song, I was just mm. like obsessed with that song. I just thought it was the coolest wow. thing. Maybe if something about being a Fredericton, it just felt like this is from a different world and so exciting. And I've always been attracted to R&B. I, I love the vocals and, you know, I love the harmony singing and the energy of it. I remember being obsessed with Maestro. Maestro Fresh West was a, mm -hmm. a giant record for me. But I really think the big change, all of that stuff was kind of like, that was what was coming through the main line. You know, I was a much music yeah. kid. I was, that's what I was. And so I was excited by that. But again, like, it is different when something falls in your lap that wasn't, that didn't come through that channel or didn't come mm -hmm. through your parents. And for me, it was like distinctly a Miles Davis record in grade seven. It was, it totally, it was, wow. well, it was a Cannonball Adderley, something else, that record that, you know, it came around, it's around the same time as Kind of Blue and it's quite a similar vibe. It must have blown your mind. It blew my mind. I bought, I went to my record store downtown and I said, I want to get a jazz record for my dad. He was really into classical music. And, and he was like, well, try this out. And he gave it to me and I gave it to my dad and my dad turned it on and was like, no, this isn't my music. This is not what I do. I, he liked choral music and like big like musicals, but also mostly like choral music and classical music, big romantic classical mm -hmm. music, you know, super dynamic. And, and it was just not of his interest. And I remember him being like, you can have it. And then I took it upstairs and I, and I was a trumpet player at that time. And I heard the intro to Autumn Leaves, you know, dum, dum, yeah. dum, dum, dum. And it's just this crazy, super chill. And everything about it, I was like, I'm in. I'm in. Wow. I'm completely, you wow. know. And it was so, and I think everybody has that. Everybody's got that moment. For, but for me, that was, that was it. Because I, it was like, no, nah, I don't know. Uh, th there weren't other people in my social circle. Like it was just, it fell into my world and I felt like, oh, this is, this is, this is special. And I love this. And I listened to it endlessly. I played with it. I thought everything about it was cool. It, it turns out everything about it is cool. Uh, you know, it, <laughs> it's still. And you were cool, yeah, David. Still, <laughs> no, I was definitively uncool. <laughs> I think that's part of what I loved about it. It felt so sophisticated. It's a, I was a, I was a, you know, an awkward, super, you know, gangly, uncoordinated, you know, 13 year old boy in Fredericton with, and from a big family full of life, full of music, full of music, full of life. There was no doubt about that. But that record felt like there was restraint. There was sophistication. There was, it was just deluxe for me it was a universe it was a universe that I was interested in and so yeah that was my that was my thing what was it about the record what was it about you know the early David Bowie the Kate Bush I Kate Bush I find fascinating because of what's happening now I mean can yeah. we can you believe this oh that's yes. the most it's the most beautiful thing yeah ever it's what you always hope will happen to great artists 
Mm-hmm. Honestly, I don't see it as being a negative when people, it's beautiful. It shows how ahead she was that she literally yep. had a pop hit. What, 30, 40 years after that? I remember watching that video. Yep. I remember watching that video and being like, this is weird. I was, again, it was like Belle Bib DeVoe and Kate Bush. You know what I mean? I remember the weird videos that would, the weird, quote unquote, weird video. It was Tom Waits, I Don't Want to Grow Up on Much Music. Mm-hmm. They'd play that video and I was like, who is this? This guy's wild. Kate Bush. <laughs> And I'd be like, this is out there. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was really out there. I, what was it about those? I, I think they were weird. Um, and I felt weird uh, as a, you know, a teenager. It was weird. And it was that music could be, it, this was it. It was, I learned that music could be about anything. Mm. And you were, we were talking about, you know, stepping back and opening up and making the field as large as possible. They were the artists that told me that that's what music can do. Um, you had your Miles Davis. He blew open the doors for you. And I think it was, it was David Bowie and, and Kate Bush that blew open the doors for me. And I just realized anything can happen in modern music anything can happen at all it's not the top 10 that i was listening to on chum am in scarborough growing up you know there's there's a whole new world here and uh and it combined everything i loved it was it was theater it was dance it was art and it was music and uh that to me was the was the full monty i loved it the universe Mm-hmm. It was a universe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's it is interesting, and and that idea that it just can be anything. Mm-hmm. The, it's not even. It doesn't even have to be five. It doesn't even have to be three and a half minutes long. But I mean, but even if you were to give it a time limit, even if you were to say it was only four minutes, there is still infinite possibilities within a four minute period of time. That's yeah. what I always find fascinating. Yeah, it can do, and and it can work. It can move you. Yeah, fundamentally, it pull you in, lure you in with the most, you know, the fact that it is unformulaic is the thing that thankfully, thankfully, there's not only one way. Yeah. Uh, You know, there's a, there's a feeling in in a lot of, a lot of musicians, uh, they will, they will write an intro to a song or they'll write a song and it will be quite structured and quite easy to figure out, you know, and the rhythm is, is obvious. And then they will decide, they'll, they'll have this really interesting intro for it that has nothing to do with the song. You know, the, the drums have not kicked in yet. You don't know what's going on. But they'll, they'll write a beautiful, atmospheric, lovely intro. And I'm hooked by the intro because there's, there's nothing, there's no structure yet, you know, and I'm really pulled in. And then they drop it completely and, and then they go on their way and they lose that uh, feeling of infinite possibility as soon as, the, as soon as the song starts. And I've often thought I would love to, and I should do this sometime, is just collect all my favorite intros and just, and just put them all together. It's a great concept for a show. It's a great radio show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's uh, mystery, right? It's like as soon as you don't feel like there's mystery, if you don't know what's, not, what's coming, as soon as you know what's coming yes. around the corner. Yeah, it's very interesting. And yet the flip side of that is in pop music, a huge part of the popularity of any song is comfort level familiarity 
uh, anticipation, knowing what's coming next, um, that's equally and probably way more uh, weighted um, in the music world to that's what people are looking for than what I'm looking for. Yeah, right. You know? I think so. Yeah, I think so. I think sometimes we we don't realize how much newness actually is rewarded in pop music mm. and that that the really successful pop music actually leans forward a lot more than we give it credit for, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like that when we think of pop music, we think of the 90% of imitative pop music, mm-hmm. which is all the stuff that comes after that. They're like, well, we got to make it sound like, yeah, we got to make it sound like it's because the tendency of the industry is once something works, it needs to be repeated. Whereas of course the reason it worked was because it had an element of newness. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes I listen to Drake's music, especially when it first when it first came out. It was in to me to my ears. I'm going, this is actually quite new feeling. Mm-hmm. You know, it was at, in many ways the most popular music in the world. Mm-hmm. But then when I'm listening to it from a mix perspective or from a traditional melodic perspective or whatever, I'm going, wow, these are really soft sounds and quiet drums, and he's kind of talking about his you know vulnerability, like these kind of talk, rapping, singing very vulnerable it's a, it's a, it felt new but then when you hear the 10 people that come after it becomes increasingly less interesting and, and sometimes that ends up becoming pop that becomes pop music not actually the thing that that you know what i mean that broke the doors open yeah yep like yelling it, hey like after arcade fire did like you know everybody it was like 10 people on stage and everybody was yelling mm. hey or whatever that was exciting <laughs> and then it was like distinctly unexciting <laughs> very very quickly Hey, let's get 10 people together on stage and yell, hey, okay. <laughs> it was awesome at first. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I, but I, I think the newness element is, I remember even working with Classified, he was always like, it needs, it was interesting because he was working in a more pop music oriented world than I had ever worked in. And in many ways, right. it was far more forward-leaning than where I had come from, which was a more traditional singer-songwriter place. It was actually much more interested in going, no, we got to do something new. There has to be a sound on this that people have not, even if there are certain form elements that might feel familiar or beats, mm-hmm. there was always an interest in his mind to be like, there needs to be a sound, at least a distinct element of this song that is new. And he was one of the first people that actually, strangely, and he was one of the more people, he was much more engaged in pop music, in popular music than other people yeah. I'd been working with. He leaned more forward, which I thought was interesting. Hmm. But you've got both those things in your brain. Like if you were a, a keen fan of Miles Davis at 13, I mean, you've got an ear for music that has no rules and uh, goes to different places. And yet you also have a keen appreciation for for roots music. Yeah, I like I like musician. I, I think I've always been kind of a music, like a musician nerd, if that makes sense. Like I love mm. being in the room and playing music. Like I will, mm. I'll watch four traditional Celtic players play together in a room and it will bring me to tears because of how, mm. it's not that that's the music I listen to at home. I love watching people interact with each other musically. Mm. I'm just, because I was a band kid, because I love, I love the pursuit of something as in a group and the, the this weird live. So there's there's you know the roots element. I think will always come back to that part of me. It's just I mm. there's nothing that compares to being in a room, 
playing with your friends and having voices and harmonies that appear and people taking solos and that whole thing I just am very fascinated by and then the other side is that I love recorded music and I love what recordings what, what's possible in in a recording so do you think of yourself as a player first probably I'm not particularly I think I'm a listener first more and oh, more okay. I'm realizing I think I'm actually a listener first I think I'm more, I'm not particularly great at trumpet. I'm, I'm not, a, I, I do not solo as a guitar player. I didn't start till I was much later. I'm not, you know, a singer like many of my friends are singers. Um, but I love, I love musicians, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like I just love, I love musicians. why i don't know i just you know it's it's a weird pursuit you have to you have to it's like a it it feels so special it feels so special in the world creating music feels so i'm not as familiar with other art forms and i I obviously i feel the same way about poets and and all sorts of artists but there's obviously music is like my group and i Mm. feel like i'll always go to bat for i just it's a very special pursuit and it's challenging and it's hard on the mind and on the soul and but look what it gives us and and it's this it gives us this infinite pool that we can all swim around in and be part of for endless you know it doesn't matter if it's a career it doesn't matter anything none of that stuff it's more like is it being made who's you know and i just i think so i think fundamentally now more and more i'm realizing i'm just actually a fan i kind of more and more i i know what i like or, or what moves me, or what, as you say, kind of what pulls me in. What, 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 when do I feel like it needs to change, and when do I feel like I want to sit in it? It's like that's more. That's how I start to listen to things now. It's like, okay, when do I need it to change? When do I need? When do I want? When do I want movement? When do I want to sit? When do I want rest? When do I want to be pulled forward? And that's interesting. That's an interesting way to think about a piece of music too. That's, that's a newer thing for me, but mm-hmm. I wondered if I hadn't learned it from Classified in a bit. He listened mm-hmm. to things as samples because he sampled records. Hmm. So he was always looking at moments. Yeah, and moods, right? And moods and was yeah. not connected to like, well, this is in a particular key or this is mm-hmm. happening here. It's like, no, no, no. Okay, now I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready for something else. Oh, okay. What about... And so it was a very different like possibility. I just like, looked at the three and a half minute thing or whatever for whatever a song possibility and what, wow, he's looking at this in a completely different way than I am. That's fascinating. It was weird. It is. It's interesting. Weird because I didn't see it coming. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I had a certain sense of music and then I learned, but that's how it is all the time. And that's why I think I love musicians because I always learn something from each of them. Mm-hmm. Everybody yeah. approaches it different. Yeah, creativity comes in many, many flavors, doesn't it? I mean, you've learned this by having these conversations with people. I mean, all these conversations mm-hmm. you've had, I'm sure that you have a certain idea of what you think they're going to do, and then they, 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 they bring something completely different, and you, you get something, you, you learn something from that. Mm-hmm. And the artists, you know, that every time they put out an album, it's, it's different. And so you're, you're thinking, okay, what are they up to now? And you might not like it, you might like it, but you stick with that artist because they're a changeable beast and they're not afraid to follow the muse. And uh, I love that about an artist too. And to me, that shows that that's someone that's swimming in deep create, creative mm-hmm. waters that's willing to 
shift gears in a major way um, because they're they're following their you know what what's on their brain at the moment. Yeah, I I love to watch the way that that creative process works. Well, you do it. You do it. Oh. Yeah, I mean, that's what I'm. I think that's it. That's what I find so fascinating about your career, your work, your broadcasting styles. In fact, it is exactly that. Mm. It's that it, it is an ever nice evolving. Nice of you to say that. Yeah, that's nice of you to say that. And I and there is an element of uh, of me in in every step I've taken is what have I not done before. What have I not done before? I want to do something different. And and when I launched Pondercast, it was kind of like, okay, here I get a chance to really spread out. And I I don't have to make it about anything. Like I don't know how I managed to do this, but it's a it's a podcast about anything. And every time I I don't even know. Like I'm thinking about. Joshua and I are thinking about the next episode right now, and I have no freaking clue um, what it's going to be about. Uh, I'm thinking that I'm taking my old Christmas tree and I'm going to torch it, and I'm thinking that is going to be the impetus for the episode, but... I don't know what it's going to be about other than, you know, I'm a closet arsonist. But other than that, I don't know what it's going to be about. But I think that something will come from that. But that's the light you're following right now. From the infinite, that's that's the the, light. From the infinite, infinite possibility perspective. So you do return to that place every time you look at a new episode. Yes. And it's terrifying. I get really panicky that I, I don't have it. I it's, it's going to fail this time. And... Uh, and I do find that when I hit publish on an episode where I really, really think I've screwed it up, those are the ones that get the most, uh, I get the most feedback on. The ones where I've sort of been the most vulnerable and I've touched something that, you know, I tell myself, oh, people are going to think this is stupid. As soon as I tell myself that, I, I know I'm on the right track. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Isn't that the weirdest thing? It's like, but uh, that's something you probably learn over time. Yes. Right? Is that at first, it's like you actually, that thing that, that you're most afraid of is like, you're like, actually, that little voice, I've actually didn't listen to it the last time. And when I did it, it actually meant something good. Yes. So. Yes. Do you find the same thing? All the time. I, uh, yes. All the time. It's universal. I think it probably is because we're, again, we're scared that we're scared of the thing because the thing is actually real if that mm -hmm. makes sense you know what i mean yeah. the thing is actually kind of it's as you said it is the vulnerable moments it's it's where we're exposed where we're like putting ourselves out there where we're saying something or that that feels like okay i'm i'm but that's the goal that's where the goal and the weirdest thing to me is that it's those moments that feel the most personal they feel like oh, no one's going to care about this this is too mm. That somehow those I go back to this a lot when I'm, when we're talking about songs is like this universal versus specificity. Like you go into these really yeah. specific vulnerable moments and you go, why would why would people care about this particular feeling I'm trying to express? And mm -hmm. it is actually indefinitely in those. It's always in there where that yep. where you relate to people the most because they're like, oh, I didn't know other people felt like that. I was yeah. 
And that's yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's like people will say, are you in my head? And to me, that is the greatest compliment you can get. If someone says, you had that thought that I've had before and have never said out loud yeah, that's great. and have never yeah. talked about it. And if I can, if I can have the nerve to make myself potentially sound like an idiot and say it out loud, then that has the, the, the biggest connection for me with, with people who are listening are in those little tiny, tiny thoughts and feelings and moments. Because hmm. we're all scared. <laughs> and hopeful. <laughs> and hopeful. <laughs> oh, man. Lori, thank you so much for this. This was wonderful, David. It's was... so great to talk to you and get to know you. Well, thank you for taking the time. I, I knew this was going to be special, and I, uh, you know, I really, really appreciate getting to do this. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Lori Brown, so cool, so wise, a well of wisdom and chill. I really appreciated that. And I, I had a feeling I was going to dig it. I've been a fan of Lori's, as I said, for a long time. I've been familiar with her for pretty much my whole life. I've listened to her on the radio tons. I've always admired the way she describes things, the way she moves on the radio. And I was so interested to then kind of turn the microphone on her and see what made her tick, what interests her and, and where this all comes from. And she was so giving and generous with her time and her ideas. And I'm so grateful. And I'm so grateful to you for joining me week after week, episode after episode on Miles From Home. As I said, we had a little delay there. We didn't put out some episodes, but they're coming, folks. I'm not giving up. I love doing this. I appreciate having you here with me. I love having these conversations. We're going to have a whole bunch more. So, and if there's someone you really want to hear me interview or chat with, I don't even call them interviews. Most of the time, it's just a conversation. Get in touch. I'm on Instagram at David Miles, M-Y-L-E-S. I'm on Twitter at Miles David. And I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Facebook too. I think it's David Miles Music. Somewhere around there, you're going to find me. But I really appreciate everything that you bring to this, sharing the episode, spreading the word. And thank you again to Lori. We'll be back real soon with more episodes. In the meantime, take care of yourselves. Appreciate you. Peace. Peace.